It is my joy and privilege to welcome up one of my dear, dear friends. Uh, Lois and I love spending time with uh, uh, Scott and Katie, his dear wife, fantastic wife, Katie. And it's really cool because our kids get along as well when they're up here. Uh, Scott is a husband, father, and author, and he pastors Woodland Christian Church in Woodland, Washington. Scott has been a frequent guest speaker up here at Cornerstone Bible Church. And as I was thinking of who I wanted to ask to be a part of our 10-year anniversary, um, Scott LaPierre was without question one of my very top picks so please join with me in welcoming up Scott LaPierre. Testing. Testing. There we go. All right. I found it. Well, what a privilege it is to be here and celebrate this anniversary with all of you. Cornerstone has a special place in, in our hearts, uh, my family and I. Now I've got to see if I can get this back on my belt here. I can say sincerely, second only to Woodland Christian Church, this is our very favorite place to be. And I mean that. We really love the people here. We consider them, many of them, dear friends. And Karis and Carrie and Lois are, are wonderful friends of ours. I'm going to be honest with you about this. We spend time with Carrie and Lois very, very selfishly. And I say that because I look up to Carrie very much. And he's, he's a few years ahead of me. And so if I was to fast forward to when I'm his age, about 30 years from now, <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And, and <laughs> now, it's, now it's come back and get serious. And see where he's at and what he's doing with his family. In all seriousness, uh, I, he's one of my heroes. I truly look up to him and would love to be doing in 10 years what he's doing and have my family serving alongside me. My children are a little younger. My youngest is 11. But even as Lois was sharing up there about her children serving, I sat and thought, I'm very glad my daughter Rhea is right over there listening. My other children are here listening and can see the wonderful example that the Green family sets. And so we spend time with them selfishly because I love my children seeing the Green children and learning from them and, and hopefully following that example. And then Katie, very regularly at home, Katie says, what would Lois do? And also, I'm serious, what would Lois do? How would, how would Lois respond to that? And so she's always very blessed to be around her. All right, well, the title of my message is The Importance of Holiness and Unity. If you have a bulletin with you, the lessons are on this side. And then briefly on the back, you can see the family worship guide. I think it's very important for families to gather around the Word of God. And that responsibility rests where for that to happen? Someone say, parents, I'm actually looking for something. Fathers, fathers. Yes, that responsibility rests on the fathers to gather the family around the Word of God, and so I hope that this family worship guide might assist you with that. Important to have the family around the Word, not just on the Lord's Day, but throughout the week. But for the message, we're going to be spending our time on these lessons here. So I want to begin with our first lesson. If you look there with me, lesson one, God's pattern is to have an inside and outside. God's pattern is to have an inside and outside. If you take an elevated scripture, elevated view of scripture, you'll see this. I would say the devil and the demons who joined him are the first ones to learn that there's an inside and outside because they were inside heaven and then they sinned and then they found themselves where? Outside, right? Who's second? 
I would say the next individuals to learn that God's pattern is an inside and outside is actually the first two people. Because they saw that there's inside Eden, and then they sinned and they learned that there's also outside Eden, right? And you go forward from there a few chapters, and when it started raining, they learned that there's inside what? Inside the ark. And there's also outside the ark. And as you move through the Old Testament, you actually see that every single historical book deals with that pattern of inside and outside. Every single Old Testament historical book establishes that pattern of an inside and outside. In Exodus, God unleashed these plagues on Egypt. And very quickly, the Hebrews learned that there's inside Goshen, where they were not affected by the plagues, and then outside Goshen, where all the Egyptians were affected. God delivered Israel from Egypt. It's clear that there was inside Egypt, outside Egypt, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're moving through the wilderness. And it's evident that there's inside what? The camp. And then there's outside the camp. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. There's inside what? Inside the promised land. Outside the promised land. And Israel, or the, the Jews, the son of the kingdom of Judah, learned that. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel learned that when they were taken captive by the Assyrians. And then the son of the kingdom of Judah learned that when they were brought outside the promised land into Babylon. And then in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, those deal with the inside when they're brought back into the land. If you leave the Old Testament, you move into the New Testament, and you reach the Gospels, and you see this pattern continues, because God came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and what did he bring with him? He brought the kingdom of God, and there are those who were pressing into it. Matthew 21, 31, Jesus said to the religious leaders, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Mark 4.11, Jesus said to you, it's been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Luke 16.16, 16, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it or inside it. You leave the gospels, you move into Acts, there's the establishment of the church. And again, you see the pattern of the inside and outside. Colossians 4.5, as Christians were to walk in wisdom toward who? toward outsiders. 1 Thessalonians 4.12, walk properly before outsiders. Paul describes the qualifications for elders, and he says that we have to be above reproach so that we can be well thought of by whom? You might expect him to say your congregates, right? But he says to be well thought of by outsiders. 1 Corinthians 5.12, what have I to do with judging outsiders? So Paul says as Christians, we don't have to worry about judging or confronting the sin of those outside the church, is it not those inside the church whom you're to judge? God judges those outside. This pattern even continues for eternity. Revelation twenty-two fourteen: Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral, sexually immoral murderers, idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. You've got believers inside, unbelievers outside. God's pattern throughout all of human history. Now, I want to ask you to think about something. In the Old Testament, the boundaries were physical. There was physically inside Eden, outside Eden. The ark was physical. There was inside the ark, outside the ark. There was inside Goshen, a physical location, outside Goshen, inside the camp, physical boundaries outside the camp. The promised land had physical boundaries. We're inside it, outside it. When you reach the New Testament, 
you see that there's no physical boundaries. There are no physical boundaries for the church, as has already been discussed today. The church is where we go. Does that make sense? The church is where we go. Cornerstone Bible Church is not this building, and you see that because this church, or Everett, and then Cornerstone has moved around. And every time it moved, the church moved because the people moved. So it's never been about a building. So let me ask you this. Since we don't have these physical boundaries, during the church age, what's going to create the boundary? During the church age, without those physical boundaries that characterize the Old Testament people of God, what is going to create the boundary? And the answer brings us to lesson two on your bulletins. Holiness creates the boundary between the inside and outside. Holiness creates the boundary between the inside and outside. This is why holiness is so important. Okay, give me your attention when I say this. Without holiness, the inside looks just like the outside. Does that make sense? Without holiness, you can't tell the difference between the church and the world. It is only holiness that establishes the distinction between the people of God, the people who are part of God's kingdom, and those who are still part of whose kingdom? The devil's kingdom. Regarding holiness, I think we often misunderstand what it means. We tend to think that if something is holy, it's moral or righteous or good, and if something is unholy, then it's immoral or it's sinful or it's bad. While that can be true, I want you to appreciate how that definition breaks down so you can have a greater appreciation for what holiness means. And this is what I want to invite you to consider. Don't think of holiness so much in terms of morality. Think of it in terms of separateness or set-apartness. When Moses approaches the burning bush, what did God tell him he was standing on? Holy ground. Did that mean that that ground was more moral or more righteous, or less sinful than other ground? No, but it was called holy ground because it had been set apart for God's use while he occupied the bush. What about when Canaan or the promised land is called the holy land? Does it mean that it's somehow more moral, or more righteous, or less sinful than other land? No, it's called the holy land. In fact, God condemned his people for living in the holy land and not being holy. So at that time, it was almost the unholy land. And it was called the Holy Land because it had been what? Or is what? Set apart for God's use. You think about vessels. You could have two identical vessels, completely amoral, inanimate objects, incapable of being moral, immoral, righteous, unrighteous. You take one of those vessels, you put it in the temple for God's use, and now it's what? Take it out. It's holy. You take it out of the temple, and it's unholy or it's common, or it's profane. Not necessarily because you can't have an inanimate object that's moral or immoral. In the Old Testament, God gave ceremonial commands to his people to help them be separate, or to help them be set apart, or be holy. And these are the commands that we typically think are weird, right? These are the commands we typically think are weird. They're the commands associated with clothing, or the commands associated with having tassels, or the commands associated with fabrics that are not supposed to be mixed together, or the commands associated with farming certain ways. And maybe it's even kind of nagged at you, if you're familiar with those commands, you've thought, are people better or more moral 
if they keep those commands? No, but they would be holier or they would be more set apart or separate from the surrounding nations of the world at that time. Leviticus 19.27, you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beards. Now, some of you are so unholy, you don't even have beards. (laughs) Pastor Kerry. (laughs) Two questions you could ask, two questions you could ask. First, you could say this. What is the big deal about mixing fabrics together? Or what is the big deal about gardening a certain way? Or what is the big deal about wearing tassels on your clothes? Or what is the big deal about our pastor not having a beard? How does that make someone moral or better or immoral or worse if they're not doing that? It doesn't deal with morality and immorality. It deals with holiness, though, and it deals with set-apartness or separateness. All these commands helped keep the people of God or the Israelites separate from the surrounding nations. Now let's talk about the application for us, right? Just like God called Israel to be holy in the Old Testament, what is the call that he has on us as the church? It's the same call, isn't it? If Israel was called to be holy, are we called to be holy? Yes. 1 Peter 1.15, I'm not quoting Leviticus here. I'm not sharing Exodus with you. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I mean, talk about a strong verse, listen to this. Hebrews 12, 14, without holiness, what? No one will see the Lord. I mean, talk about the importance of holiness. We're told that unholy people will go to hell. Unholy people will not see the Lord. That's how serious holiness is. That's how the life of believers must be characterized by holiness. Now, the second question, if Israel was holy by keeping some of those commands we consider to be weird, does that mean as the church we're bound to keep those same commands? Do we need to put on tassels, or do we need to trim our beards a certain way, or do we need to get rid of clothing that mixes fabric together, certain fabrics together, or if our gardens are are plowed a certain way or seated a certain way, do we need to, to redo them? What we need to do brings us to lesson three. Lesson three, holiness in the church means avoiding worldliness. Lesson three, holiness in the church means avoiding worldliness. This is how the church is holy, by avoiding worldliness. The definition of holiness has not changed in the Old or New Testament. In the Old Testament, it meant set apart, separate. And in the New Testament, what does it mean? Still means set apart, separate. But the way to be holy, Israel was holy by being separate from the surrounding nations. We're holy by being separate from the world around us. A lot of verses I could give you, though. This is how we're holy. Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That person is not a Christian. That's how serious it is to love the world or to fail to avoid worldliness. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people. He compares it with, with a, a sexual sin, but spiritually speaking, to be an adulterer, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And again, I don't have to try to make these verses sound stronger. If I could share those and you don't feel the weight resting on you, I would encourage you to consider where you're at in your relationship with the Lord. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. When that verse is read, that should cause you to ask if you love the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. That should cause you to ask, am I a friend of the world? So if you want to be holy, this is what I would say. Don't worry about tassels. Don't worry about fabrics or gardening a certain way, but you need to be worried about what? Or we need to be worried about what? Worldliness. We need to be worried about worldliness. The only way the church can be separate from the world is if there is a clear division between the two. And holiness creates that division. Now, if you think of those examples we discussed from the beginning of the sermon, God always made boundaries between his people and the world, and those boundaries, were they ever blurred? No, they were not. People in the Israelite camp never said, hey, let's make sure the inside of the camp looks like outside the camp. People in the promised land never said, hey, let's make sure being inside the promised land is just like being outside the promised land. Or Jesus never said, I don't want to be exclusive. So let's make sure people can't tell if they're inside the kingdom of God or they're outside the kingdom of God. So hopefully you notice the application for us, or to be specific, for Cornerstone Bible Church for the years to come. There has got to be a clear division. When people come into the church, they have got to recognize that they're leaving what? Okay, I'm going to ask that one more time because that wasn't a very good response. When people come into Cornerstone Bible Church or Willing Christian Church, they need to recognize that they're leaving what? The world. And that means our music, our language, our dress, our actions all need to look different from the world. And this is why it's so important to understand the difference between morality and holiness. Because when we see the difference, the question is not just this. What is right and wrong? Or what is good and bad? The question is, does this look like the world? Does this sound like the world? Is this what... The world does. And if the answer is yes, then it doesn't belong in the church. Because then it's blurring, or worse, destroying that line. Now, sadly, sometimes when churches, and I think this is probably something that has only crept in in the last few decades, in an effort to reach the world, Some churches have thought the best approach is for the church to look like the world. This is the seeker-sensitive movement. And the idea is, if the church looks like the world, then we'll be able to win more people who are in the world because the church will be more attractive to them. And then what you get is you get a whole bunch of people coming into the church spending their lives in it and being unsaved. Never repented of their sins. Never cried out to God for deliverance from the wrath that hangs over them because they have continued to live 
under the belief that they've left the world when they haven't, because the church that they've entered bears no difference or distinction from the world that they think they have left. You know that it is not God's plan for that line to be blurred. If you've been listening up to this point, he wants a clear distinction. When I attended a Christian church for the first time, it wasn't the similarities between the church and the world that was attractive to me. What was it? It was the difference. It was the refresh. And I didn't, go, I didn't go just to make this real brief. My brother had died of a drug overdose, and someone said, hey, you ought to come to the church and talk to my pastor. He lost his brother too. I didn't have any intention of getting saved, be born again. thought I was a good person and good people go to heaven. I just went to talk to this pastor, but I, want, I walked in, and the difference between that church and the world is what so strongly ministered to me. For many people, they go to the church not even knowing what they're going to get simply because they're so sick and tired of what? The world. They don't want to see the world in the church. We're destroying our witness. We are destroying our testimony as the people of God and the strongest tool we have to reach those unbelievers by thinking that we're going to be more attractive to them if we look like what they're leaving. The strongest witness we have is that distinction, is that boundary that God desires. Bill Izzard said, if we are obsessed with making our Christian worship comfortable and non-offensive to unbelievers who hate God, we are in danger of denying him and his call to holy living. Are we justified in taking such a risk? only that we might not offend? Surely Christians are not to seek to offend, but Christ says those who follow him will be offensive. It is unavoidable. Now, there's one more thing that really speaks to those outside, and I want to go back up, get a little momentum going into this. I want you to take your minds with me to the Last Supper. Take your minds to the Last Supper. Jesus is hours before his death on the cross. He knows that his time on earth is short. And at this dramatic moment, considering the needs not just of his 12 disciples, but of all future believers, he is going to pray the greatest prayer recorded in, in Scripture. We unfortunately say the Lord's Prayer and our minds go to our Father who art in heaven. That's not really the Lord's Prayer. That's what he told us to pray. If you want to know what the Lord would pray or what would be the Lord's prayer, look at what he prayed, and the longest record of it is in John 17. Now, in that prayer, when he prayed for future believers, which is to say he prayed for who? Look around this room. Cornerstone Bible Church, Woodland Christian Church, all of you sitting here. What, knowing all of our needs, would you expect him to pray? I might expect him to pray that we would have victory over temptation, that we might be evangelistic and share the gospel, or that we might pray regularly. I might even expect him to, to pray that we would understand the word, or based on what we've been talking about up to this point, we might expect Jesus to pray that we would be holy, because that's what's going to allow us to be a witness to those outside. Instead, what did he pray for us? Take a look with me at John 17, 20. He prayed for unity. 
He prayed for our unity. Of all things he could pray for, he prayed for our unity. John 17, 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, which means he doesn't ask or he doesn't pray only for the 12 disciples he prayed for in the previous verses, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, through the disciples' preaching or the apostles' doctrine, and this is us, that they or we may all be one. So here's his prayer for us to have unity. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that, that they also may be in us. And now notice this, he says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be, again, here it is, that they or that we may be one, even as he says we are one. He prayed again for us to have unity like he has with his Father. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, and then notice this the second time, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So twice Jesus prayed for us to have unity, and that's important. But he also let us know why he prayed that we would have unity. Because our unity on the inside is what? A witness to those outside or to the world. It is our unity on the inside that reveals or speaks to the world that the Father did what? Sent his Son. Gave his Son. That's what he said. And this is why our unity is so important. It communicates or legitimizes Christianity to the unbelieving world or the outsiders looking in. And this brings us to lesson four. Those outside observe our part one unity. Lesson four, those outside observe our part one unity. Let's think about why our unity is so important inside. When the world or when outsiders look in and they can see a group, don't take this personally, of sinful, selfish people, which is what we are, which is what every church is, with all of our different what? Personalities. Struggles, strengths, weaknesses, preferences, backgrounds, opinions, all living together in unity fellowshipping with each other, the world says that is supernatural. That doesn't just happen. I don't know what is going on, but I know that's not natural. I can't explain it, so I'm going to do what? I'm going to go check it out. I'm going to go see what's going on there. It legitimizes Christianity to them. And the other reason that unity is so important is it makes Christianity attractive. There are a lot of things about Christianity that are not attractive. You don't have to feel bad about that. Jesus didn't feel bad about it. He says, if you want to follow me, come and do so because then the rest of your life's going to be great. What does he say? You've got to pick up your cross. You've got to deny yourself. Jesus didn't shrink back from telling us or sharing with us the, the, the difficulty associated with the Christian life and the amount of self-denial associated with it. And so when the world can see the blessings and one of the greatest being unity, then we want them to recognize that. The other day, Katie and I were talking, and somehow we were on a long trip driving, and we ended up having a discussion uh, of something we'd never talked about before, which, was when I, which is 
when I joined a fraternity in college, I was not a, I was not a Christian at the time, this is not a commentary on joining fraternities or sororities, <laughs> but we were talking about it, and I was sharing with Katie all that I had went through to join this fraternity, or all the hazing, and this is what she said, I quote, I can't believe you went through all that. It sounds like what people go through to be jumped into a gang, it's a real testament to how much people want community. When we look around, whether it's fraternities, or whether it's gangs, or whether it's clubs, or whether it's any organization that offers what? Community and deep relationships, they exist because of the strong desire in all of us to belong. And this is why unity inside the church is so important, because it's attractive to those outside. Don't draw in the world, listen to me when I say this, don't draw in the world through worldliness. Don't play ridiculous music. Don't show stupid movie clips. Give people the word of God. Let them be drawn in to hear it by what takes place in the relationships between each of you. This is why unity is so important. It is attractive to the world. They can tell that what takes place in here is not like those superficial, shallow relationships that have characterized their lives for some number of years, some number of decades. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if what? If you have love for one another. Now, we're so familiar with this verse, we lose some of the significance of it. But I want you to imagine you didn't know this verse for a moment. Think of all the things that Jesus could have said would reveal to the world that we are his disciples. Praying a lot. Going to church. Memorizing scripture. He could have even said, living a holy life. Which is what I would expect him to say based on what we've talked about. And all those things are important, but Jesus said it's going to be our love for each other that identifies us as his disciples. Listen to this important verse, Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to the household of faith. So however good you might do for anyone else in this world, you have an even higher responsibility to do good or special favor must be shown to who? Look around. Look around. Whatever you might do for anyone else in this world, you have an even greater obligation to do good for these people sitting in the pews next to you. Why would God say this? Why would God say this? I mean, if he wants us to reach unbelievers, why would he say you need to be making this special effort to people who are already believers? Because, in a way, one of the best things you can do to reach those unbelievers is to love other believers because of the witness that is to those outside when they look inside. One of the greatest evangelistic tools a church has or when churches talk about outreach, there are lots of different forms it can take. And I have to say, I, am, I have been so encouraged by the efforts that Pastor Kerry has taken to, to reach out to this community. It has it greatly challenged me. 
And, and if it's sending out postcards, it's sharing the gospel, it's inviting people to church or marriage conferences or to your home fellowship, all those are great things to do. But one of the greatest forms of outreach is simply loving the people sitting next to you. It is simply serving your brothers and sisters in Christ inside of Cornerstone Bible Church because those actions are going to speak very, very loudly to all those outside looking in. Now, I want to talk about the other side of this, and this brings us to the second part of lesson four. Those outside observe our conflict. Lesson four, those outside observe our part two conflict. So you know what happened, right? Jesus ascended in Acts 1, goes to heaven, sends the Holy Spirit. So Jesus ascends in Acts 1, the Holy Spirit descends in Acts 2. So the physical body of Christ ascends in Acts 1. The Holy Spirit descends and establishes the spiritual body of Christ in his physical absence on the earth. And so since we are the body of Christ, it is literally impossible for us not to be saying something about Christ to the outside world. It is impossible. There is no way for us not to be revealing Christ to the world as outsiders look on. And so the question is not, are we saying something about Christ? The question is what? What are we saying about Christ? What are we saying about him? And conflict among those inside ruins our witness because those outside then look on and say what? They can't even get along. Look at the quarreling and the strife between them. They say they're followers of Christ, and even unbelievers know that the Christ preached love. I mean, if they don't know anything else, that's what they're going to tell you. That Christ preached love and service, and when they say these people are following Christ who talked about love, and look at them fighting this whole Christianity thing must be nonsense. It actually undermines Jesus' prayer because it convinces the world that the Father didn't do what? Send his son. It can... It, it convinces them of the illegitimacy of Christianity. Francis Schaeffer said, bitter divisions among Christians give the world the justification they are looking for to disbelieve the gospel. But when there's reconciliation, peacemaking, and unity on display inside the church, that becomes a powerful witness to a hurting world. Now, I can tell you this. That slideshow wonderful to watch. It made me feel privileged and thankful just to be here, and I know all of you loved it. Would there be a news station that would want to show that? What's my point? My point is the world doesn't care about the good things the church does, but you even hint at Christians doing something wrong, and what? They can't race fast enough to hear what Christians have done. They could not be more interested. They could not be more passionate about hearing all of the juicy details associated with what any Christian has done wrong. They don't care about the good things, but they will look at our conflict and they will pry into it and try to get all the details that they can. Now, we know the Corinthians had a lot of problems in their church and one of the problems was their conflict with each other. Paul was upset about it and listen to why he was upset about their conflict not necessarily because it was destroying their joy, although I'm sure it was. He said, 1 Corinthians 6, 6, brother goes to law against brother, and that takes place before unbelievers or those outside, 
To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a shame for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Our unity is so important that Paul says, take the loss, lose the money, lose the item, lose the possession, lose whatever it is so that you don't compromise your witness, which is really to say you don't make who look bad. Jesus. You don't make Christ look bad. Has anyone ever heard of fratricide before? Fratricide? Fratricide takes place during battles when soldiers accidentally kill those on their own side. And although it might be hard to believe that happens, I used to be an officer in the army, and I'll give you two situations I have familiarity with that demonstrate this. I was never in, a, I was never in battle, but we did an amount of training and I could see during training just how easy it could be to shoot someone on your own side. So we used to train with something called MILES gear, which is an acronym for Multiple Integrated Laser Engagement System. So basically, it's just a big game of laser tag. You're all running around with these harnesses that have these little sensors on them, and when you get shot, this because it's a lot better for soldiers to be training with lasers versus real bullets. And so you're running out these sensors, and you got something on your M16, and it makes a firing sound, and then whenever you shoot someone, their harness goes off, and it starts making this really loud, annoying sound, and the only way to get that sound to stop is to take this key out of your M16, plug it into your harness, your harness stops making the noise, but then your M16 can't fire, so you're dead, or you're rendered ineffective. And this one time, I was running through the woods, and this guy popped up in front of me, one of my own soldiers, and I shot him and his harness started making the very loud noise, and of course he was shocked, and he turns around, and he sees me there, and I turned around real quick, hoping to make it look like I thought it was someone behind me that had actually shot him, but there was no one behind me, so it was pretty obvious I was the one that shot him. And I just remember thinking, it must be real hard during an actual battle to make sure that you don't hurt someone on your own side. When I became a tank officer, that was the branch I was in, armor, we had to spend a lot of time on what's called tank identification. We had to memorize every single U.S. tank and every single foreign tank for one main reason, so that we could recognize our friends from our foes. And you would not believe how much all tanks look the same from a distance. And even when you're looking at them on a little computer screen, and you're supposed to be able to tell which one, is, which one is a friendly and which one is a foreign enemy, and it can be very easy to confuse one of your own tanks with an enemy tank. Or in other words, it can be very easy to confuse who's on your side with who's not on your side. And as a result, a lot of fratricide takes place during battles. And you can imagine how devastating this is. You're trying to win a battle, you need everyone fighting the same enemy, and you end up destroying people on your own side. Now, can you think of anything, or can we think of anything, that the enemy that we're fighting would want more than us destroying those on our own side? Just one less person for him to have to fight, and he doesn't have to accomplish that victory. We give it to him. He didn't have to defeat that Christian, because we did it. The sad thing is after I became a Christian, the one place that I have seen the most fratricide is in the church. The one place that I've seen the most fratricide is in the church. I have seen some Christians, and I would be surprised if they would treat anyone as badly as they treat other Christians. 
I have seen some Christians do some things in the church, and I cannot imagine them doing those same things in the workplace because they know they'd be fired. I've seen some Christians do some things, and I cannot imagine them doing those same things on their sports team because they know they'd get kicked off, or in their neighborhood because they know that nobody would speak to them, but they will do these things in the church. Now, we are not in a physical battle, but we are in what? We are in a spiritual battle, and we need everyone working together. We need everyone fighting the same enemy. What are the three enemies we face? The devil, the world, and our flesh. The devil, the world, and the flesh are our three enemies we're fighting, but the way some people act in the church sometimes, you would think our enemies are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, if the devil wanted to destroy churches, what do you think would be one of his most successful approaches? Would it not be confusing us regarding who is and isn't on our side? Would it not be confusing who we are and are not fighting against? Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So here's what we need to keep in mind. When we bite and devour each other, we're doing two things. We are working against or we are undermining Jesus' high priestly prayer, and we're serving the devil, and we are helping him in that battle. Now, Curtis Thomas, he said, the more fractured we are, the greater we become spectacles to the world. The more united we are, the more the world sees Christ. Now, I want to close with one final admonition. I want to invite all the young people to look at me. And if you're saying, if I, and if you're saying am I a young person? You are. Look at me, okay? I want every single young person to look at me. Something happened last year. I turned 25. No, no. I turned 40. I turned 40, and two things happened when I turned 40. First, I gained some credibility. Job 12.12, wisdom is with the age and understanding with length of days. And so it's fairly biblical to associate wisdom or knowledge with age. And so I get older, and some people, and I'm completely fine with this, think that I'm wiser. I have a little more credibility with them. But interestingly, something else happened. I lost some credibility when I got older, or as I get older. I lost some credibility, and at least when I talk about certain things. And here's why. The older you get, the more conservative people expect you to become. So when you speak conservatively in your 50s, 60s, or 70s, or 80s, what does everyone say? (laughs) Well, that's just because you're old, right? People say, of course you're going to talk that way. That's because you're old. So as long as I'm still sort of young, in some people's minds, I am going to talk as boldly as I can about holiness. I am going to preach as conservatively as I can before I get so old everyone just expects me to do that. While I still have some credibility associated with conservativeness and holiness, I'm going to beat this drum as much as I can. Considering what I just said, though, Who has the most credibility regarding conservativeness, holiness, morality, modesty? It's not the people in their 50s. It is not the people in their 60s or 70s. It is not the people in their 40s. The people 
with the most credibility are the young people because you are the ones that the world doesn't expect you to say that or dress that way or live that way. So all of you young people, as you look to these future years at Cornerstone Bible Church, you need to understand the unbelievably important part you play in everything that I've just discussed. I am thankful for the elders. I'm thankful for the older couples and families here. I'm thankful for the fathers leading their families well. But I will tell you, and I cannot say it strongly enough, you young people who are listening to me right now, you have no idea the unique credibility you have when you live conservatively and morally. So when I preach holiness and the importance to distinguish between the world and the church, so much of that is on the shoulders of all of you young people here. And I'll use my children as an example why this is so important. My greatest desire, as you would probably guess, is to see my children love Christ and serve him. Every single night when we pray as a family, I try to make sure that my children hear me pray for their salvation. And if they don't remember any other prayer from their father growing up, I hope they remember that every single night I prayed for them to serve Christ and love him, for him to save them. And so because of that, I want my children to have good examples. Now, the examples that I follow in my life, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, Pastor Kerry is one of them. I look up to him. I would be pleased in 10 years to be very much like him and have my family be like his family. My sons are not looking at Pastor Kerry. I will say my sons aren't even looking at people in their 30s or 40s. My son, who's 10, is looking at teenage boys. He is looking at young men in their early 20s. So when you walk around and you say this, I'm young, so it doesn't matter what I do, you could not be more wrong. You could not be more incorrect because you have no idea the influence you have on those young people who are looking up to you and following your example. I have seen some parents whose children have went off the rails, and they said to me, I had no idea the strong influence their peers would be, even stronger than me as their father or mother. Whether that's true or not, it at least confirmed to me how important it is for my children to have other young people that they can look up to. So I'll say this, if you're a young man and you are setting a good example for my boys or other boys in the church, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for treating the young ladies around you with respect. When I see those photos and I see young people who are pushing the broom, pushing the vacuum, working in the kitchen, thank you for that example that you were setting truly from the bottom of my heart. I cannot tell you how much it means to me for my younger children to see what you're doing. If you are a young lady in that age range and you're setting a good example for my girls, we have seven children, the eighth is on the way, my oldest is 11, my daughter is 11. She probably doesn't want me to single her out, but she's sitting right over there. <laughs> All of you young ladies, I want to thank you for carrying yourselves with respect. If you are a young lady and you sit here and you are dressed modestly and you are feminine, 
You help your mother with the home, with the food, with younger children. I am so thankful for you. But you know what? It really does not matter that I'm thankful for you. What matters is it pleases Christ. If you are a young man or a young woman and you are embracing biblical masculinity, and biblical masculinity has nothing to do with how physically strong you are. It has everything to do with how spiritually strong you are. If you're embracing biblical masculinity, which means you rip your eyes away from things you shouldn't look at, or you're a young lady and you're embracing biblical femininity versus the world's feminism, thank you so much, so much for that example. And keep going, keep beating that drum. (laughs) Keep preaching conservativeness. Keep preaching morality. Keep living holy and preaching holiness because you have tremendous credibility that us as we get older lose. So my prayer for the future of Cornerstone Bible Church is that you keep raising up 10 years if Pastor Kerry invites me back, or the Lord hasn't returned, and we see another slideshow. I hope it's filled with more young people who are serving the Lord, looking to the Lord, and setting good examples for those around them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've done here for 10 years, and we pray for more years of being a light to this community. I thank you for what you've done, and just pray that you would continue to do it And I think about Scott Luce and his faithful service here these years and you calling him to Texas. And I pray that you would raise up another man or other godly men to serve with Pastor Kerry and Chris as elders and help with the shepherding of the church. There look to be some number of deacons. We praise you for that, Father, but you've called elders to shepherd and lead the church and we pray you would provide them. And we pray for each person here that we would understand the importance of holiness and the boundary that it creates between the world and the church. I pray for myself as a pastor that you would help me to lead my church well regarding creating that distinction or boundary. And I pray for the young people that they wouldn't have heard what I said but would hear what you say to them because you have a call on their lives. I think of what Paul said to Timothy to set a good example telling him at that young age. He didn't tell him when he was older to set a good example. He told him at a young age, set a good example, Timothy, for those around you. And that's the call you have on young people. Help them to embrace it. Cast off the world's absurd, ridiculous call for for kids to be childish until they turn 20. And we pray they would put away childish things. We pray that they would embrace your word and service and faithfulness. And we thank you for this time and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.